0: I'm borderline guilty about how much money I made while going to school. Started in radio, got into television. Uh, had the Mercedes account for a while. But to become an actor and work part time, make it more staccato. That it's never been easier to get a commercial, and it's never been harder to make a living at it. Giant tubs of mayonnaise. You know, how do I account for my longevity? I love to take direction.
1: Some call it the voice of authority, others the voice of God. I call it the voice of Ralph Gunderman
0: there for you first thing in the morning and when you get home at night we're there for you in the heart of your evening in this edition of promo
1: cowboys you'll get a chance to hear how it's done from one of new york's premier voice artists
0: nbc news america's news leader
1: ralph gunderman is a superlatively talented voice actor and artist and i've had the honor and pleasure of knowing and working with him for 20 plus years make that 20
0: odd years cbs news election 08 hillary clinton has unequivocally thrown her support behind barack obama however as a die-hard hillary supporter i'm continuing to wear my pantsuit stay tuned to cbs for more election updates We're now returning to the tony orlando and dawn rainbow hour already in progress
1: all right. Well, welcome, Ralph. I am so honored to be speaking with the man who wore a pantsuit and pearls on The Late Show with David Letterman. So why did you dress in drag on national television?
0: It spoke to one of my highest values. It was funny. I was one of uh, a handful of people who regularly did faux voiceovers for, for The Letterman Show. He... Um, would usually in his monologue, sometime in his desk routine, would um, cite things he had seen on the air. Like, did you see this uh, advertisement for this political ad? Or uh, did you see the movie promo for this? Or or it could be a fake CBS News interruption, you know. We interrupt our program, that sort of thing. And um, I was lucky enough to be in there a couple times a week doing voiceovers. And uh, on two separate occasions, one of the writers came up with this idea that involved me being on camera. Uh, and one of them was the pantsuit. The other one was on very hot summer day, naked from the waist up. Um, you may be <laughs> familiar with the term muffin top. Well, I've got one. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's again, it was funny. Hillary had just thrown her support behind Obama, and uh, I was playing somebody who was a Hillary supporter and was sticking with Hillary and to show my solidarity was in a blue pantsuit. It started as a voiceover, but then cut to me standing up in the back of a booth, you know, long, curly gray hair, unshaven beard, you know, just couldn't get scruffier in a powdered blue pantsuit with large, white, beaded necklace and and earrings. Oh! The the writers would tell the the producer who would call my agent. My agent would say, "Um, you know, they want to know if you'll go on camera and do this bit. And, you know, like like I'm going to say no, you know, I'm I'm a performer, you know, I'll do anything.
1: So how many times would you say you appeared on The Letterman Show, both on camera and through your voice?
0: Well, that was about a 10-year gig. And on average, I probably got on roughly once a week some of them would be repeats but if you if you take 50 times 10 that's uh about 500 that's voiceover there were only two on camera
1: okay so there's the muffin top and the hillary homage let's
0: let's not let's not stress the muffin top
1: can we can we google muffin top or gunderman no. muffin top on <laughs> youtube
0: <laughs> no i didn't i didn't put the muffin top video on youtube
1: Somebody else might. <laughs> okay. They might. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about your voice work. You've been, to me, you've been a top voice in New York for as long as I've been in the business. But off the top of your head, can you just list uh, some of your more regular clients, some of your more prominent clients?
0: I never had big commercial accounts. Uh, I mean, I had accounts from time to time. Mercedes Benz was building sports sedans before there was such a term as sports sedan. Experience. Back in the 80s, I had for two or three years the Mercedes Benz account. The heart of a sports sedan, the soul of a Mercedes Benz, the one. And uh, in the same agency, TRH, was a guy named Ed Gasper who had the Chevy account. And the joke was, with the Chevy account, you could buy a Mercedes. With the Mercedes account, you could buy a Chevy. (laughs) Because it was a huge difference in volume. So there's prestige, and then there's money. (laughs) And that was kind of funny. It was with an agency that I started with in New York called TRH, Trainum, Robertson, and Hughes. A great, great outfit and great, great people. Chuck Trainum was like a, a father.
1: Right, right. And I remember one of the agents I was on the phone with at least daily when I was at Channel 2.
0: Yeah, that was probably Martha.
1: Martha, yes.
0: Martha Robertson.
1: Martha Robertson.
0: She gave great phone, you know. She just was sweetness and light while she had her hand in your pocket pulling out more money for us.
1: And, you know, in Promo Cowboy, uh, Cowboy talks about dialing the number of an agent. And when you dial the number, it makes the tune of Little Brown Jug. And in fact, it was (laughs) Martha's number at TRH that did that. Was that her hold music? No, it was actually the the seven digits you pressed. Oh, oh, oh. Ah. It's crazy.
0: I realized that. I did not know that. your listeners know your reference to promo cowboy i really did enjoy that book
1: oh that's nice of you to
0: say that was a lot of fun the reason i asked about promo cowboy is I'll, I'll do a little plug for you that i've read two of your novels thank you for that enjoyed enjoyed both of them the first one was very dystopian what was the name of that one
1: that one's called life askew
0: right life askew and it was very askew and uh, it was it was kind of surrealistic slightly Promo Cowboy, you know, I was thinking about Promo Cowboy and I I said, well, how do you describe Promo Cowboy quickly? And what came to me was it's kind of really the promo business, but expressed in a way analogous to the way Bob's Burgers expresses uh, a a burger joint and a family. Okay. You know, there's a lot of truth in it, but it's it's also, you know, it's comical, you know, it's caricature, but. Yeah. Yeah. Archetypal, as it were. I hope it's a good read. Yeah. Yeah. What I liked about it, what I liked about it, I think I even, I know I I wrote a review for it on Amazon because I liked it that much. And it was, the, the, the cool thing about it is the central character, the promo cowboy is a made up character, not by you, but by him. So you made up this character who made up a character. I know you actually made up both of them, but, you know. Correct. So you, it's, it's, it's sort of like metafiction in that sense. and It was, it was fun.
1: Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Yeah, I, I, it was fun to write it, and I look forward to uh, all the many, many sequels. Okay, for the record, that shameless plug for my guest, on my behalf, was unsolicited and unpaid for. And it provides me the opportunity to remind all my beloved listeners that this Promo Cowboys podcast is brought to you by bourbon, beer, and bar pretzels, and by the novel Promo Cowboy, a TV industry thriller by yours truly, Barry Fitzsimmons, available at your finer bookstores and at Amazon.com. Find the ebook at the Amazon Kindle store, and one of these days, I'll let you know the podcast version, chapter by chapter, of Promo Cowboy. Now, before we return to my conversation with Ralph Gunderman, a little background. Ralph was, for more than a decade, a regular voiceover artist for NBC News. He was the voice of NBC's juggernaut magazine show, Dateline, the show as well as 90% of Dateline's promos. And therefore, countless promos for which I was writer-producer.
0: The people, the places, the times that touched our lives. Do you remember the man who started the sexual revolution and the student revolt? You and, and I did
1: about four years of very regular work together on Dateline, um, all promos, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and sometimes daily, as I recall. I mean, there were that was when the show was on five nights a week, and uh, you were regularly coming into the office and reading in one of our booths, and, and we also did a lot of ISDN stuff. But tell me yeah. how you remember those days— being the voice of Dateline.
0: It was on five times a week. So um, that was a lot. And I did promos for it for, I guess, about six or seven of those years. Well, for the for the promos, I had uh, a couple NBC lawyers on Retainer. And after we'd do a promo session and I'd leave, they would then say, oh, no, you can't say that. You have to rewrite it. Then i come back and get paid again.
1: So that's what it was. OK. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. That's a lot of uh, overtime I made thanks
0: to that. Yes, it's funny because a significant amount of the income from that uh, was the function of people changing their mind a lot. And on the uh, on the promo side, that meant another session fee. So I loved that. On the show side, it meant not getting out of there until the show was on the air because, well, I'm not sure we should say and there. I think plus would be better and um, a lot of changes. But both the promos – and the show, apart from being very lucrative, what I enjoyed the most about them and what I think has almost entirely disappeared was the way that I could read a promo and even more so the way I would read story segments in the show, descriptions of segments of the show, either in the open and in what we called bumpers or teases, something that was upcoming. I could change my approach to how I was giving the information to a listener based upon the story. So, if if a promo was something serious like some sort of uh, horrible nanny with a child under threat, that would be a completely different feel than a fluff piece on a celebrity. There were many of those. You know that tabloid stuff. Um, some fluff piece on Mary Kay Letourneau, the teacher who uh, had an affair with her fourteen-year-old student, or or O.J. Uh, after a while, the o j Simpson trial became its own beast mostly i could I could adjust the read based upon the topic, and that was true in the promos and it was also true uh very much in the show and After the first couple of years in particular, the unique experience for me in Dateline was by and large, I was not directed. I was able to do my own interpretations I was basically trusted there was nobody in the room saying oh I'll read that differently unless it was for a technical reason speed time how it how it interfaced with a with a sound on tape or something so that i was really able to bring my actor to it in the sense of how do i feel about what i'm saying how do i want the listener to feel about what i'm saying and how do i shade it to get that effect uh, i'll go back again to the uh, the um, kind of story where uh, where a child was in some sort of jeopardy for whatever reason. And these were particularly poignant to me during the dateline times because I had a young child. And you know what that does to your sensitivity about children. Yeah. And so I was very aware of how this would hit a parent and really tried to uh, uh, communicate it in that way. That's fairly unique in our business, Oh, there was a little kicking man. His name was Simon Slick. He owned a mew with dreamy eyes. or well, how that mew could kick? He'd show one eye and shake his tail and greet you with a smile. He'd gently telegraph his leg and raise you half a mile. This mew he's a kicker. He's After a kicker. I was taken off promos, you up uh, it was at a time of transition where instead of interpretive reading, promos became stock melodies. Yeah. Um, so that whatever you were talking about... You used the same melody.
1: Right, right.
0: It could be, the price of corn has gone up again. Or it could be, you know, terrorism. Within days of Tom Brokaw's office receiving anthrax powder, was it anthrax?
1: It was anthrax, yes.
0: In in the building at NBC, I heard a promo by one of my successors, a colleague that I know well, uh, uh, Brian Carney is his name.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Great sound. A great sound. Very airy sound. Uh, and a lot of people don't know this, but he's the, he's the son of Art Carney. I did not know that. Um, and, but I heard this promo for Dateline, and it started this way. Terrorism. You're doing sensationalism on something this serious. I mean, we were doing the show and trying to make it as serious as possible. And uh, and, and that's what the promo sounded like. So to me, that was the end of, of, a, of an era I was lucky enough to enjoy.
1: Well, I was gone from there myself by then.
0: Yeah. By the way, I, I have to say this for Brian. The only reason I brought up his name was because I knew Brian and I asked him, I said, how did they direct you? And he said... They just kept at me. They kept on pushing me and pushing me and pushing me. No, make it make it harder. Make it, make it you know, terrorism. Oh, yeah, that's it, you know, which was very depressing to me.
1: Uh, I think, yeah, I think they probably took it very personally that the, their top man was attacked in that way. And um, I, had, I had left the building by then, but I, I think you and I were together during a, a more genteel time for Dateline. Yeah. And certainly a very prolific yeah. time. And yeah. by the time nine eleven came and uh, and the anthrax scare shortly after, it just um, I think so many things changed. I mean, the the building changed. The security was amped up to the point where you're like you don't even know how to work the elevators. Yeah, how many times have you gotten in an elevator and not knowing you were supposed to push the floor you're going to on the outside? But um, I do um, remember well, um, sort of discovering as we worked together that I could get more than just a straight promo read from you and I could sort of use your um, interpretive capabilities uh, to the advantage of my spots that I was doing. And, And... One of the funny things was, you know, it was all your work and I got to take a lot of credit for it because everybody was like, how did you get that read from him?
0: Dateline Tuesday, a crime wave strikes Yosemite National Park. The victims, campers, tourists and their cars, the suspects, bears, black bears. You once asked me, you know, how do I account for my longevity? I think part of it was I love to take direction. Learn more. Watch Dateline next on NBC. Folks, please don't let this happen to you. My orientation, my ambitions, and my training were as an actor. Uh, And what was the blessing of my voiceover career was that I started in radio, got into television, ended up getting into television management in a local independent station, hated it, and um, (laughs) quit to become an actor and work part-time. So I had the conventions of broadcast. Uh, you know, the styles and and those things that just are the way people work and the way people get used to hearing things. Uh, But I had, I had the acting and that's what came together in Dateline and in the promos. I'm borderline guilty about how much money I made while going to school.
1: (laughs) That's a great way to look at it.
0: Here's, here's what you could, here's one of the things you contributed to me in which, which I used in other contexts. Um, it, the, the speed of a read is frequently a premium because everybody wants to get a lot of words in. And we did a lot of promos that were only 15 seconds, and you could, can't get that many words in. Uh. And you had uh, a direction that you harped on, frankly. <laughs> you know where I'm going. Oh, I know. Yeah. Make it more staccato. Now, I know what staccato is as opposed to legato. Legato flows and staccato is. Took me a little while to get it, but when I got it, I said, aha. Staccato meant not only that one word wasn't flowing into another quite as much, but that the words themselves were time compressed. Yeah. Say the word faster, but leave a little space where appropriate between it and the next word or the next phrase.
1: Yeah. You became a master.
0: You were already a master. I was already a master. A
1: master of staccato.
0: This staccato thing uh, was like one more thing in the toolkit because it created an effect that you mentioned, you know, the the clarity and and the... But it also was one more tool for one of the universal directions. I need you to take two seconds off that read and make it sound less rushed. Now, there are a number of tricks... Uh, for how to do that, and staccato became one of them for me.
1: The Dateline promo gig was the best promo gig in New York. I certainly learned that after I left NBC, and I returned. But by then, um, we weren't seeing you, sadly. We were seeing other guys, and uh, other guys, great guys, love them. Aaron May, love him to death. Mm -hmm. A lot of Brian Lee then, but... Back to Dateline, it really was sort of your baby for a good seven-year period.
0: I was into my 12th year on the show when it ended. Not the show, me. Yeah, I I was taken off promos in, in 2000. I didn't end my gig on the show until 2005. The decision to take me off promos and the attempt to take me off the show were very much impulsive decisions on the part of this executive. And I I just immediately changed my approach to it. I took it down because somewhere the word had come out that things were too tabloid. Really? So we took the show as far away from tabloid as we could and uh, sort of kept our heads down. And to this day, I don't know why the threat to take me off it went away, but I've always suspected – that the executive may have thought that I had been replaced. The open of Dateline was very carefully crafted. Sure. And there were a lot of elements that went into it. I remember it well. From the video editing to the read to, we even did Foley work sometimes. You know, I'd go in the booth and do things for sound effects. So it was, it was crafted. Right, right. And Dateline was completely an NBC show. A lot of what was on primetime, of course, were shows bought in the open market. Dateline was owned by NBC, so NBC could adjust the cost of it. Dateline was brought in in its heyday at one-third of the price of average primetime television. But that didn't prevent them from slashing it even more. So people were getting laid off. The uh, post-audio room that we worked in was... Uh, Scotched. Yeah. It was... It was converted. So yeah. they saved all that money. They uh, they mixed the open in uh, video edit rooms and yeah. had the anchors do the voiceovers.
1: And, um, you know, um, when I returned to NBC in um, late 2007, I was uh, walking the halls. I hadn't really been in there for a good almost eight years. And I walk onto the fourth floor on the west side, back where we used to do all that work. Mm-hmm. That that room that you're talking about, where you work with Louie was literally uh, right next door to my edit room, edit four, where I did all the promos for Dateline.
0: There was there was even a back door.
1: There was a back door between the two rooms. Remember,
0: I would I would I would go in and, and bother you people occasionally,
1: and we would do the same. It was I loved it. It was it was like it was like family, but. But the office, that whole space was taken over, was gutted and turned into the offices for Countdown, the Keith Olbermann show. And um, I I was not allowed back there. Let's put it that way, because, you know, we all have heard stories about um, how things uh, run when you're working with Mr. Olbermann. I have great respect for him.
0: I don't know anything about working for Mr. Olbermann, but I'm a fan. I've always enjoyed him. Oh, I love his work. I've just
1: read and heard that, that it's difficult to work for him. Okay, so... There is a way to say that that we were there for the best years of Dateline and and when it ended, we were bitter for a while, but we realized that um, you know, let's face it, everything ends at some point and and we have to
0: move on. So it was it was it was great fun. I have a nephew who works in human resources and he visited one time and he said, This you guys have to be in the best place to work I've ever seen because you laugh all the time, you make jokes. You cut up, and then somebody walks in with something that has to be done five minutes ago, and boom! Everybody's hyper focused, and and it gets done, and you do top level work, but you're loose. You know, you enjoy yeah. your work, and that's actually the way it was, and and I do miss that a lot.
1: Yeah, me too. And um, I'm I meant it when I said if I could still be doing it now, I would. I don't know the the, the whole marketing ethic has changed so much, at least with promos. I suppose if you're crashing newscasts or. Or news magazines, it might be a different story.
0: Yeah, I think and and Dateline always walked a fine line between uh news magazine and breaking news.
1: Yeah, and thank thankfully because <laughs> I don't want to do breaking news all the time, but I was happy to do it when, you know, like Princess Die, like you mentioned, I happened to be uh, you know, there when the day that Michael Jackson and Farrah Fawcett both died um, and I remember having done a lot of work on the Fair Fawcett um, Dateline special and they were actually preparing to repeat the special on the day that she passed and I was um, on that campaign as well and sometime around 2 in the afternoon when we're deep into the production of the spot that's supposed to air during nightly news for the uh, primetime telecast all of a sudden we get news that Michael Jackson has died <laughs> and she was, um, she was taken off the schedule, let's say, and they crashed out a, a Michael Jackson show instead. That's how the news business goes. But really, must everything end in tears? Perhaps, if it meant something. But see here, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? Yes, yes. There is life beyond NBC. Take ESPN, for example.
0: So, you're ready to experience ESPN HD and ESPN2HD at home You know, we
1: hadn't worked together for a number of years And then we did a thing for ESPN For their HD awareness push
0: Just because you have an HD TV
1: set doesn't mean you're seeing espn And I had you read it in the style of a sort of a 1950s Talking to housewives kind of sound (laughs) Every time I hear that spot, I just smile We nailed that one Order HD service from Cox today Okay, so a guy does years of top-notch voice work for Dateline NBC and has the chance to wear a ladies' pants suit on Letterman and even does a few spots for ESPN. But where and how does a guy like that get his start in voice work?
0: Well, the first job I ever got paid for was a narration in college about schistosomiasis. It's a parasite disease that was a problem, may still be, in Africa. So the first professional hurdle I had to get over was learning how to say schistosomiasis, as though I said that every day. My My first professional job was in Dayton, Ohio, on a radio station called WING, and I was doing the all-night show, and about two-thirds of the way through the summer, it was just a job for the summer. The production director, the guy who made all the commercials and did all the production for the station, decided he was going to go to New York and hit the big time. And he had an assistant from the University of Cincinnati who had gotten pretty familiar with all the equipment. I had a little familiarity with that, but not that much. So they needed a production director and they were stuck until they found one. What they did was they took the two college kids, me primarily as the voice, and this other guy from the University of Cincinnati, and we were the production department. So I was in a position where I was voicing commercials, and um, I learned how to edit. I learned how to announce because there were clients coming in who needed commercials made. Right. We had to crank out a lot of product. And in the course of six weeks... I got this huge education just because I was in the right place at the right time. When I got to New York in 1981, by and large, actors still wouldn't do commercials uh, because it was somehow beneath their craft. But uh, the people who did do them were these voices that you knew because there were only a few dozen of them and that's who i saw at auditions these voices i'd heard all my life hal douglas stan watt the the most famous of them all jackson beck he did everything performability from studebaker with the 61 lark so exciting you've got to drive it to believe it i actually remember more of the west coast names because when i was in cleveland direction would would be oh give me an Ernie Anderson read or give me a Danny Dark read and I have always said that the reason that I did well initially was I was a poor impressionist (laughs) because I would try to give them an Ernie Anderson read and it gave them the quality they wanted but nobody said oh that's Ernie Anderson it's the last battle in the war of ape against man it's over the survivors may envy the dead the battle for the planet of the I did something for East Ohio Gas, and it was the devil talking to an interviewer, and they wanted the devil to be Paul Lind. Who who knows more than me about heat? The devil,
1: you know. That's Paul Lind. For those of you out there, Paul Lynn was the center square on, on Hollywood Squares.
0: Sam Bass was born in Indiana. It was his native home. At the early age of 16, young Sam began to roam. He first so came out... So the timing of getting there when it was still journeyman voices and it wasn't nearly as big a field. I asked my agent in about the late 1990s, and I said, I got here in 1981, just ballparking it. By what factor has the number of people going after this work increased since I came to town? And she thought for a moment, she said, maybe 12, 12 times as many people going after it. I have a, an actress friend who has had a good career in this. Uh, and she said, it's never been easier to get a commercial and it's never been harder to make a living at it the uh, first television station I worked for they wanted a booth announcer to do all the interstitial announcements but that was in no way a full time job. You have to be able to write, you have to be able to do other things and I put together a tape to sort of present myself so what I was doing was writing and directing really cheap on on station commercials and promos and everything else and, and announcing and Just in the last month or two, on Facebook, on a a discussion group, I think Cleveland Radio or something like that, somebody came up with a recording. It was WKBF-TV, Kaiser Broadcasting Channel 61 in Cleveland, and they came up with a recording of me doing a break, and it was awful. It was just awful. You can't believe that I I was a professional at that point. There were artifacts, I didn't know nearly as much about my instrument, all of these things. And people just assume, well, how hard is it what you do? You know, you've got this lovely voice and you just talk. But the voice isn't natural. I mean, I have to have have the physical, but it's really developed over the years. And that's what I mean by constantly learning on the job.
1: we remembering back now when we used to work in the booth, I'd see you through the glass, Whenever you read a promo, you smiled. You used to have this sort of smile on your face, like, I'm, I'm sort of acting. I'm not just reading the words, but watching you now, you're not smiling so much when we're talking.
0: <laughs> the reason I was smiling was not because I was necessarily happy. The reason I was smiling was probably because you can hear a smile, and you will frequently be told to put a smile in a read.
1: Yes, I'll be the guy saying that often
0: this is an EOB uh, from medical insurance questions please contact participant services at 800-562 now I'll read that with a smile questions please contact participant services at 800-562 you did it It sounds different. That being said, I once worked for a producer for Showtime who said, I heard you on the tag of an infomercial doing an 800 number. And even when you give an 800 number, I can still hear that sardonic edge in your voice. I
1: I never hear the sardonic edge in your voice unless I ask you to give it to me that way. And we have yet to mention the Beatles in this entire conversation. Or number nine. Number nine? Number nine? Take nine, folks. I asked what an old-school baritone like Ralph thinks of all the young guys who've millennialized the industry.
0: A lot of the journeymen in the business will stand around and complain about, you know, where the business has gone, and it's all these kids, and it's ageism, and so forth and so on. But I think it's democratization. It's peer-to-peer. What they want to hire is somebody who is, sounds like the people they are talking to. Right. They don't want a voice of authority. They want a peer to appeal to a peer. And, of course, the people they want to appeal to, the people who will open their wallets, are 18 to 35. And there's no way for somebody like me to, to sound like one of these people. There's an arc to this business. Yeah, the business is less than 100 years old. When it started, we were using carbon microphones, which needed a lot of volume and you were dealing with people who had learned how to speak professionally and acoustically to be heard in a theater. Right. and So that's the way they talked. Plus, since it was a very exclusive and magical thing, it came over the air. You wanted the voice of authority to announce things. And over time, it softened. As the microphone technology softened, and you got closer to the microphone, and could be a little bit more intimate, You didn't have to have a pleasing voice to not sound bad on the radio because the equipment would reproduce the voice exactly how it was. Whereas with the older equipment, you know, uh, a kid who might be selling Burger King now, you know, at Burger King this week, all you need is $2 and you can get two sandwiches, you know. Yeah. And it is the way of the world. If you like him in the morning, you look really the work that I have gotten in the last 10 to 20 years has been basically retro ESPN radios, Mike and Mike I can't breathe right now. And frankly, none of us can looking at you in a prime time special. This is going to be the most when they want something to sound like things used to sound like, then they'll get somebody who used to make those sounds. So, um, the, the bass baritone, is both one of the reasons for the longevity and one of the reasons why the business has retired a lot of us. Hence the arc. And the arc of technology. In the old days, the craft of being able to uh, do a 30-second spot that was exactly how they wanted it, but it was a half a second long. And so you do it exactly the same way, but take a half a second off it. Now, I don't know how a person can do that but I know how to do it. Yeah. I merely don't know how I do it. And <laughs> that kind of technical ability became less and less necessary as editing and uh, time compression. Time compression. Like that.
1: You know, when I started, you had to go out and buy a nice stopwatch to take to every one of your VO sessions. Mm-hmm. And then I stopped using them and I, everybody who did use one would be looking at me like, how come you don't, you're not timing this? I'm like, because I've got Pro Tools.
0: Yeah. I once... Was doing spots for an electronics store, which was trying to differentiate itself from a big box warehouse where you could also buy electronics. And uh, there was a punchline you don't want to get your electronics where you get five pound chunks of cheese or something like that.
1: Side note here fans of punk rock from the 70s and 80s may remember the circle jerks and their Repo Man soundtrack tune, When the Shit Hits the Fan, in which the very phrase, five-pound blocks of cheese, is uttered.
0: I got called for an emergency down at the advertising agency because the client was, and they're trying to come up with a change of this commercial that the client will buy. So... We're in a video editing room, and I voice some things on a handheld microphone, and they're still trying to fix something. The head of the agency, the writer, the video engineer, uh, the video editor, and me are all sitting in this room and trying to brainstorm what the punchline is. You know, don't buy your electronics where you buy. And what we eventually came up with, and I don't even remember whose idea it was, was giant tubs of mayonnaise. (laughs) so we said, okay. And we cut a demo of this so we could put it into the spot and take it back to the client. This is at the advertising agency down on Hudson street, a little boutique agency. I don't even remember the name of it. And we did that and they bought it and they loved it. And I got booked two days later to do the spot. I did the spot. Everybody's happy, except it's not exactly the same read on giant tubs of mayonnaise. So, We started doing just that line in triplets, which is the way they do it. We did it three times in a row. Yeah, And we did 20 to 30 triplets of that line. And they were just trying to find one that just, I don't know, somehow sounded just like the one on the demo. This is called Demo Love. Eventually, they settled. A few weeks later, I was lucky enough to get another commercial. It was in the same studio with the same engineer at Howard Schwartz Recording. We had read the spot, and then they took it apart and did all the lines three times in a row repeatedly. And there was one line in particular they were really not sure about, so they were into a discussion. Nobody was in the room, just me and the engineer. They were all off, connected through ISDN. But I could. there was obviously a committee in the room. So they said, why don't you guys take a break? We're going we're gonna to listen to some stuff and try to work it out. So I took my headphones off. I walked out of the booth. I walked into the control room. I looked at the engineer and said, giant tubs of mayonnaise. And we both were hysterical. (laughs) You know, and that's the state of the industry.
1: All right. With giant tubs of mayonnaise, I'm going to get you out of here. This has been great, Ralph. Thank you so much. It's been a lot
0: of fun, Barry. I appreciate the opportunity.
1: Okay. We're going to stop here and plan to hear from Ralph again in a future edition of the Promo Cowboys podcast including the story of his work in theater and radio.
0: A week into it, they said, "Uh, we want you to be program director. And I said, okay, what's a program director?
1: (laughs) As always, this Promo Cowboys podcast has been brought to you by bourbon, beer, and bar pretzels, and by the novel Promo Cowboy, a TV industry thriller by yours truly, Barry Fitzsimmons. Available at Amazon.com and your finer bookstores. Thanks for joining me. This is Barry Fitzsimmons, and I'm interested in your feedback. Ping me on Twitter, at PromoCowboy, also on Facebook and LinkedIn, at Barry Fitzsimmons. I'd like to thank my guest today, Ralph Gunnerman. Ralph is represented by Alan Duncan, Sherry Hoffman, and Deborah Sherry of Innovative Artists New York. I also want to thank freesound.org and the Pond5 Public Domain Project for providing the music you heard on this Promo Cowboys podcast thanks to patrick fitzsimmons for creating the podcast artwork and thanks to my support team jared monero charles burleps and zach trinka promo cowboys is a steve production steve is a division of igloo media llc this podcast was produced by barry fitzsimmons thanks again for joining me as promo cowboy says shoot feels just about right don't it take us out